Thank you all for coming. Um, although the title for this talk is Face to Face, today it's going to be Faces. We'll be looking at more than one. We'll be looking at the many faces of Abraham Lincoln as he rose to national prominence and through his presidency. Um, and again, if you'll just follow me, I'm delighted you're all here. I'm amazed anybody came out tonight. Um, and uh, let's walk down and we'll take a look at Abraham Lincoln. We could all just sort of gather around here because I want everybody to see this image as a starting point. Is that it? I guess it is. In 1856, the poet Walt Whitman, who was then living in Brooklyn, New York, wrote an essay in the middle of the sectional crisis, the impending crisis, as it was called, the terrible decade of the 1850s as the Union started to fall apart. He wrote an essay called The Sixteenth President. And in it, he said he would be pleased to see a heroic, shrewd, full-faced, I'm sorry, an heroic, shrewd, full-bodied, healthy, well-informed, full-bearded man from the West walk across the Appalachians into the presidency, a boatman, a blacksmith wearing a clean, neat set of worksmen, workman clothes. And in 1856, there is no way that Walt Whitman or very few other Americans knew who Walt Whitman, knew who Abraham Lincoln was. He was the new man on the scene. He was the man from Illinois, a very small political career, a one-term uh, congressman from the state of Illinois, about to run for the Senate against one of the real powerhouses of the day, Stephen A. Douglas. And Lincoln exemplified in his fresh-faced newness the new republic, the republic that was coming into being um, as the North confronted the problem of secession and slavery. And I chose this image as the outside image, the advertising image, the iconic image of the show because it's an unfamiliar Lincoln. And it exemplifies, although without the beard yet, you'll notice that Lincoln does, is not bearded. This is 1857. He has tousled hair, aquiline features, a, a rather flamboyant tie. It's not a familiar picture of Lincoln up for us. It's Lincoln at the beginning of his career. It's not the first picture of Lincoln, but it's the first picture of Lincoln that announces his presence to the American people. And he, in many ways, seems to me to have a kind of characteristic of a romantic poet here particularly with the tasual hair. And I think that sense of vitality, that sense of freshness, in our own political day, we're talking about new solutions, new ways of doing things, the notion of hope. And in 1856 to 1860, Lincoln came to embody that promise. So if we go into the exhibition, the one thing I do want to say just curatorially as we move in, this is Lincoln's 200th birthday, the anniversary, and there are many shows on Lincoln. And what we discovered at the National Portrait Gallery is we could make a virtue out of necessity. With all the shows going on, we realized we had one of the best, as Ian said, collection of Lincoln photographs uh, and Lincoln portraits. And it, this exhibition provided us with the opportunity to bring them out of storage and show them, particularly the crack plate Lincoln, the, the iconic image, image, Lincoln image from 1865. Lincoln is always on display at the National Portrait Gallery. He's in the Civil War, the Hall of Presidents. He even permeates this building. His second inauguration was here. Um, but this provides us with the opportunity to show all the range 
um, of our Lincoln pictures. Now, you're going to be surprised when you go in, because the first image uh, we're going to look at is this picture as it actually occurs. And then we'll move towards the crack plate, Lincoln, um, and I'll, because we are a group, we're not going to walk around, we'll talk, and you can kind of move as you please. But keep in mind what that looks like, and then let's look at the, at the actual first image in the show. And if you remember, as you go through it, this is that picture, this tiny Alexander Hessler image from 1857. In those days, there was no film. If you, had a, if you wanted a big picture, you needed a big glass plate. If you wanted a little picture, you wanted a little glass plate. And this tiny thumb-sized image of Abraham Lincoln is the, the flamboyant romantic picture that you saw outside. And what this is, it's the marriage of art and politics, because what, how this was used was, and the reason why it's so small, is it would be cut out and put on pasteboard or more elaborately worked up in a jeweled setting or, or a frame and worn as an embryo, one of the first political pins. And we have, in fact, here, one of these pins, an image of Lincoln taken from the Cooper Union speech photograph here, and you would wear that to demonstrate your political allegiance to the Republican Party and to Abraham Lincoln. There were two important organizing elements in the 19th century America. There was religion. It was a much more, however religious we are now, we were much more religious in the 19th century. And the other way that your life would be organized was through politics. And we were much more political, much more partisan than anything we think we are now. Whatever you think about partisanship now, it was nothing on the 19th century. Um, and Abraham Lincoln, as we look at him back through history, he, he, he embodies the sense of martyrdom. We know how he died. We know the tragedy. We know the Civil War, all of those things. The first thing that Abraham Lincoln was, he was an expert politician. And the remarkable thing about Lincoln is he, again, to reiterate the theme of the new man, he comes from nowhere. He's born in Kentucky, desperate straits, never got on with his father. It's perhaps not fair to say that he hated him, but his father, and he never got on. When Lincoln's father was dying, he didn't visit him on his deathbed, didn't go to the funeral. He loved his mother. His mother died early, leaving Lincoln largely bereft. This man, again, seeming to, seeming to embody this the individual in space with no constraints, no allegiances, nothing to really hold him together. He easily could have disappeared. He easily could have been one of the countless Americans who just lived, died, and as he put it, his life would have been one of the short and simple annals of the poor, ending in some forgotten grave somewhere. And Lincoln, somehow through a combination of internal drive, through internal determination, natural ability, and all the rest of it that we know through the myth of the self-made man, well, the myth is no myth with Lincoln. Lincoln embodied it, he enacted it, and he acted it out through, the, through, the, through a, 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 his projection into public life through the realm of politics. Lincoln, however he did it, his, his law partner, William Herndon, once slightly disparaged him by saying, the little engine of Lincoln's ambition knew no rest. And he meant that to be that Lincoln was a little bit too ambitious. He was a little bit too the nouveau riche, not nouveau riche, but he was a little bit too pushy. He was a little too striving. The people who were elites on the East Coast you know, would look askance at this man who was essentially a hayseed. He didn't go to Harvard, Yale, or any of the other schools. In fact, he barely had 18 months of formal schooling at all. His schooling was largely received as he plowed the fields reading a book. His father would then come out and frequently would beat him for that. So you can imagine the trauma that was involved in that. Lincoln's ambition did know no rest. And one of the reasons why I call this show The Mask of Lincoln is because Lincoln remains, to my mind, essentially mysterious, essentially distant to us. 
Um, we look at him. There have been more words written about Abraham Lincoln than any other secular figure except Napoleon Bonaparte, although I gather Hitler is coming up on the outside. Um, and I think that this fascination with Lincoln is precisely because he was a mystery. You can't pin him down. You can't know him entirely. He's a shapeshifter in many ways. And I think that was intentional. And my point, one of the points I try to make in this show is that Lincoln, through this incredible engine of his ego, and I'm not, I'm not using ego here in a disparaging term. It's his way of preserving himself, his way of making a mark, not only on America, but making himself visible to himself, that his life would amount to something coming from nothing. And Lincoln kept this tremendous sense of reserve, which served him very well in politics, because in politics, there's the art of the possible, there's the art of projection of image, and there's the sense of withholding. Lincoln, unlike many politicians today, knew the wisdom of not speaking too much, that he always withheld. In the major speeches that he made, he made four or five, actually, in all. The two inaugural addresses, the Gettysburg Address, several others. Um, and in those speeches, he created major documents that reoriented America and American history, both during and through the war that they have endured, particularly as we'll get to the Gettysburg Address. <clears throat> but Lincoln would frequently say to public gatherings, I'm not going to speak to you. I'll be quiet. But Lincoln, again, in his notion of how obtaining his political goals, his goals of maintaining the union, maintaining and preserving the union, was one of our most innovative presidents, again politically, because he and his organization, the organization of what's became known as Lincoln's Men, they recognized early on that the new democratic and popular art of photography would be a way of projecting Lincoln's power out into the public, out beyond the, the, the limited realm of the speech or the caucus room or even the newspaper column. And what that did for the new man as he was inventing himself, first as a lawyer and then as a rising politician, it allowed Lincoln to advertise himself. Photography was inexpensive. It was democratic with a small d. It was popular. And it was easily adapted to the political processes, as we've seen with this. That beforehand, nobody would know, really, unless you worked up a woodcut or an engraving or some more formal piece of work of art, most notably if you know the, the, early, photo, the early paintings of people like George Washington. But this was easy. You could make many of these. And the Republican Party between 1857, 58, and 61 disseminated thousands of them. Um, and what Lincoln did in these photographs was, was incredibly shrewd, is that he established himself not as the man who never went to college, the failed, you know, he failed at virtually every job he ever held. He failed as a postmaster, which is practically impossible in the 19th century because it was a, po a patronage job. Um, he was the only, the only president, again, to ever receive a patent for one of his inventions. And while the patent failed, it never went anywhere, that dedication to technology, economic expansion, um, the, the sense of creativity that Lincoln had was transferred into politics in his use of photography. And the images that we see here, in 1857, Lincoln, as he moves his way through his life using photography, with this quixotic or ironic or just amusing aspect that Lincoln knew that he was not a handsome man. He was frequently criticized for not being a handsome man. He took it well, and again, unlike many politicians, Lincoln had a healthy ego, but he wasn't vain, and he would make fun of the way that he looked. But nonetheless, this not very handsome man was always having himself photographed. And Lincoln, again, I'll revert back to, to Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman, who Lincoln, curiously enough, never met. Um, Walt Whitman also knew the power of photography. 
that photography would be a way for you to shape your personality and project the image that you wanted across time. In other words, for a time that required fluidity, a time that required people to think on their feet, to move, um, Lincoln adapted that as he, as he worked his way through the, the, the incredibly difficult political and philosophical problems of the Union. Now, having said all that as a prelude of Lincoln's adaptation to the use of photography, and he was photographed almost, incess almost incessantly throughout his, his presidency. He has these pictures when he's becoming rising to presidency. This picture in particular, the Cooper Union, is the marriage of the verbal, namely the speech, which was an incredibly elaborated and eloquent defensive union. But the very morning that he gave that speech, when, Link when Lincoln arrived in New York to give it, he went to Brooks Brothers, bought a suit, had his photograph taken by Matthew Brady, and has himself posed in this magisterial, presidential, responsible way, an absolute projection of his ability visually as a man, his qualifications um, to be president. This is an, an executive picture and in all the senses of the word, and it's known as the picture that made Lincoln president because the Republican Party disseminated thousands of them to prove that their man was not a hayseed, he wasn't an unknown, he didn't just fall off the watermelon truck, and that he was somebody who could be a responsible leader in this time of crisis. Same thing over here. This is the first picture that was taken. Lincoln arrives in Washington in March 1861 to be inaugurated president. Um, and you'll notice instantly the big difference. I know it's a small picture, but you can see it eventually. First week that he's here, he goes to Matthew, I'm sorry, yes, Alexander Gardner's studio, which actually was down at the foot of the hill here on Pennsylvania Avenue. And you'll notice the main thing here. First, well, there are two things to note about this. First, Lincoln is seated. He's now president. He's sitting at the executive death, desk symbolically. He's ready to write laws, do the business of the country. But the more interesting thing in terms of photography and image is that Lincoln now has a beard. This is the most dramatic change in any president's appearance that I can think of. Um, usually, both traditionally and, and, and today, politicians establish the way that they look. And although they age, their hair turns white, they get heavier, they largely don't change it. You know, you don't want to disturb people by changing the brand. Um, and Lincoln, between, in the six months between the election and the inauguration, makes a decision to grow the beard. Well, the, the anecdote about this is a little girl in New York wrote him a note. Her name was Grace Bedell, and she writes him a note and says, since you are so homely, um, don't you think you should grow a beard because you'll look better and the ladies will like you more? And Lincoln, I give, Lincoln was an incredible correspondent. Um, and he did Grace Bedell the, the compliment of taking her seriously and treating her actually as an adult. She was 12 years old. And he writes her back and he says, well, okay, I take your point, I'm paraphrasing. Um, I, I take your point, but if I grew a beard now, wouldn't it indicate, in fact, that I am extremely vain, that now, at age 51, I should be concerned about my looks? Um, and that's where the correspondence stops, and it's a charming little episode. And nonetheless, Lincoln, for whatever reason, grows the beard, whether Grace you know, Grace's note uh, put, a, put a bug in his ear about this and he decided to grow a beard. We don't know. He never spoke about it again. He just appeared in Washington at the inauguration with the beard. What I'd like to suggest here, and again, in the way in which Lincoln cut himself off from his family, this sense of isolation, which somehow seemed to give him power, which drove him on as an individual. I think what Lincoln was doing when he grew the beard was that he was cutting himself off from peacetime. The South was already succeeded, succeeding. Seven states had gone out before the inauguration. The, the forts, Fort Sumter and the forts in Florida were being threatened. 
When Lincoln left Springfield in 1861, he says to the crowd of his hometown, I leave here now not knowing whether I will ever return, with a task before me greater even than that which faced Washington. And already he's thinking in terms of the founding fathers and what his role has to be to preserve the Union, not just to preserve the Union as a political entity or a, a, polit a body politics, but to preserve its essential meaning. And for Lincoln, again, cutting himself off as he had from his family, going his own way, going alone, forging his own career. He grows the beard, I think, because he's going to war. At the simplest level, I think uh, there's a testosterone notion here, idea here. He's not shaving as an athlete wouldn't shave, as it, but more importantly, as ancient warriors, El Cid, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the, uh, the fighters of legend, both in myth and, and in fact, would grow beards when they went to war to assume a more savage appearance. If you look at all the pictures of the generals in the Mexican War, none of them had beards. In the Civil War, they all did. Grant, most famously Lee, um, Stonewall Jackson even. And Lincoln, by growing a beard, is turning from peace and going to war. Um, and in that picture, I think we see it again, that the, the confluence here that he's, he's, he's arriving in Washington, he's having his picture taken. Let's go to one more little picture, and then we'll move to the crack plate. Because again, I want to reiterate the way that Lincoln, repeat the way that Lincoln used the visual to reinforce the verbal. This picture was taken a week before the Gettysburg Address, again, just down the street at Alexander Gardner's studio. It's an unbelievably good picture, I think, because it's full-faced. It's, it's, I mean, the notion here, again, I mean, the, the, the honest Abe element here, he's looking you directly in the eye. His hair is surprisingly well combed. He had a horrendous trouble with his, his hair in reality. I think it's an unbelievably good picture because it's direct, forthright. You see, insofar as one can see in a mechanical work of art or any work of art for that matter, you see, I think, the character of the man as he wanted to project it because, of course, a work of art is a construction. It's not reality. It's a photograph, and it's a complicit... Uh, arrangement between the, f the photographer and the sitter. And this is how Lincoln wanted this to appear. But the, the two anecdotal aspects that I want to point out about this, Lincoln had accepted the invitation to come to Gettysburg. He wasn't quite sure yet what he wanted to say. And while he was in Gardner's studio, he's reading Edward Everett's three-hour or two-hour and 30-minute oration, which, which Everett, being one of the great orators of the day, had arranged to already have published, even though he hadn't given it yet, which was a, a typical... Uh, particularly with, with, with large crowds, you wanted people to have the text. So Lincoln reads through that, figures out what Hort, whatever it is going to say. But the other thing that's going on, again, the visual and the verbal connecting here, at Gardner's studio at that time where Gardner had developed and had on display the photographs that were taken of the battlefield of Antietam after the, after the battle. And these are the famous pictures that you may have seen of the corpses, the dead horses, the devil's den, the slaughter of Pickett's Charge, the remnants of, of, of those horrible, those four days with, with over 100,000 casualties. Those are the first real documentary photographs of battle. They brought home to the war, um, they brought home to the American public the actual horror of war, the reality of it, that you could, you, you could still keep it at a distance. Everybody knew it wasn't a middle-aged, I'm sorry, a, a saga from the Middle Ages, that it was rough and violent, the casualties were terrible. But now you had the visual, again, reinforcing that. Um, when, the, when the pictures from Gardner's studio and Brady's studios were displayed in, in public in New York, it caused a sensation. And there's actually, in 1945, when, when Life magazine 
broke the embargo on combat photographs and showed photographs of the Marines at Tarawa lying in the surf. It had a similar impact. So I think the two combinations there, he knew what Edward Everett was going to say, and he also was fully, um, had, had, had seen the visual evidence of the reality of war, which I think leads him to the notion that what he's going to do is first, he's going to be short. Again, he's going to use this sense of political jujitsu to go against what's, what's expected. He's going to do his own, uh, he's, going to, he's going to develop his own vernacular, his own vocabulary, his own way of dealing with this. Um, and so it would go three hours, 257 words. But the other thing is that he, is that he would, um, through his association visually through the honored dead, he would hallow the ground of Gettysburg with their memory in order to, as he put it, create a new birth of freedom. Again, going back to this idea of when he left Springfield that he had to reconstitute the Union on the terms that it was that had been founded on during the Declaration of Independence. And the, the, the Gettysburg Address retains its power precisely because it, it changed the fortunes of the war, or changed the conditions on which the war was fought, and influenced subsequent American history because he, now the Union was fighting for an idea. The idea wasn't just simply the Union, but it was a Union of free men, including African Americans. And that's the most important moment in American history, when Lincoln at Gettysburg turns the war from a political a political problem into a moral problem. He internalizes everything about the abolitionist movement, everything that he thought about civil rights, and everything that he had steeped himself in with the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and turned it into a new, essentially moral crusade. And all of American history changes then. So now if we move over here to the crack plate Lincoln, We'll finish up because I'll go back after that in terms of how Lincoln reorients the, reorients the war. The simplest level on which this show was based was how do you get from there, fresh-faced, to there, a, 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 a face which in many ways seems to anticipate its own death two months later. This picture was taken in February 1865, again by Alexander Gardner. Um, and of, you see everything. It, it seems to me in many ways that, that all of American history for the four years of the Civil War is felt and etched on Lincoln's face. You go from him being fully headed hair, the fresh-faced image that, that Whitman described in his ideal, and you go to this, which is this eye seems almost to disappear. It seems to be a whirlpool which is running away from us and into which we fall. The, the, the eyes are pouched. You can almost feel their dryness. The skin, the beard is scraggly. Um, these deep cut lines in the face. Um, and nonetheless, there is in this, it seems to me, an element, again, of mystery with Lincoln. Again, in the sense that he's, a, he's revealing himself to us, and yet he's withholding himself at the same time. Because there's this small, and I call it the Mona Lisa smile, there's this small smile on his face which we don't really know the origins of. I mean, is he satisfied that the war is ending? Has he been thinking about a joke? Is he thinking about what he's going to do next? What exactly is going on in his mind at this particular moment? It's two years, be two, I'm sorry, two months before the end of the war. Lincoln is consumed with the, no or at least he's, he's considering the notion he doesn't think he's necessarily going to survive the second term. He's feeling exhausted. He had what he called the tired spot. And the tired spot, as he, as he went through the war, you know, he could keep the spot small, and then it would get bigger and seem to fill him up. And at this particular moment, he seems almost to be full of the tired spot. And the other great thing about this picture 
it's not only the sense of humanity and pathos that we see in Lincoln, Lincoln's, in Lincoln's face, but in the circumstances in which it was created in order to give us that sense. And it's called the Crack Plate Lincoln for reasons it's cracked. Um, when Alexander Gardner, again, to reiterate what I said much earlier, the photographs were done on glass plates, not on film. And when Gardner, they were very delicate, they're thin, you know, a little more than a, than a fingernail's width. When Gardner took it out of the Daguerrean camera, he torqued it slightly. The myth that he dropped it is wrong. If he dropped it, it would have shattered like a, into a thousand pieces. He torqued it a bit, and it breaks into two-thirds, one-third with the crack. So what Gardner did was he goes, he looks at it, and, and without knowing really what the picture was going to look like, he fitted the glass plate together like a jigsaw and took one image. He got one print out of this, and then he said, oh, well, this is going to work, and threw the plate away. So this is the only image of Lincoln from that, well, not from that session. This is the only crack plate Lincoln. If you, if you see another, it's a replica or a forgery. Um, and through this accident, people have asked me, well, did, did Gardner know that he created a work of art and wanted to increase his rarity by throwing away the plate? No. He had created an he had done it. It was an accident. He probably threw away hundreds of plates a year. Um, and that was what he had. In fact, over in the corner, we have another, another picture of Lincoln from the same sitting, which turned out fine. And it's a nice documentary picture of Lincoln holding his pen or his glasses in his hand. And it's very documentary and empirical. But through the accident, through the fact that this plate had been damaged, Gardner goes beyond his usual art and creates something really quite special. And that's where I think that you get both the documentary sense, you go from here to there, the four months, the four years of, of trial and tribulation. As Lincoln says, the fiery trial through which we pass will light us down in honor or dishonor to the latest generation. The small smile signifying that Lincoln thought that he had passed that test with honor, that he had done God's work, not knowing God's will, but as he thought God would want him to work his will. Um, essentially at the end of the war. Um, and this element to me that even as you look at him, even as he's present, he seems like this ghostly image in some ways that's receding from us. And the image that I like to use is from F. Scott, F. Scott Fitzgerald, who I think was using Lincoln. He had this in his mind. The great last page in The Great Gatsby where Lincoln talks, where Fitzgerald talks about somewhere across the dark fields of the Republic. And I always feel, in the sense that we're always drawn back to Lincoln, we're always trying to understand him. He remains a mystery to us. He's always present in America. He's always present in America present in Americans' minds, and yet he's always traveling out across the landscape away from us. Even as we seek to grasp him, he always eludes us, traveling again over the dark fields of the Republic. Thank you.